This episode of Taking Up Space is about sex work, so it acknowledges the existence of sex and talks about sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. In Canada, there's been a long history of stigmatizing and criminalizing sex work. While sex work itself is not a punishable offense under Canadian law, Buying sexual services or gaining any material benefit from sexual services is. But it wasn't always this way. In today's episode, we're going to trace the history of the legislation around sex work in Canada and explore how changes over the years have impacted sex workers and how grassroots organizations like Peers have navigated legislative frameworks and work to support people who do sex work in Victoria. You're listening to Taking Up Space on CFUV 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the Songhees and Husaitnich territories of the Lekwungen and Sanchothan-speaking peoples, whose relationship with the land is ongoing and critical to our future. To understand the current state of the laws related to sex work, it's important to understand how this legislation has changed over time. We talked with someone who took us through this history. My name's Annalie Lapp. I teach in the Gender Studies Department here at UVic, and I'm on the board of directors of Peers Victoria, and I'm currently chair of the board. I've been on the board for three years, but I'm currently chair of the board. So, as we mentioned... Under the previous prostitution laws in Canada, um, sex work itself was not illegal, and uh, but everything surrounding it was communication, live um, you know living off of the avails of prostitution, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a criminalized environment. And we inherited our anti-prostitution laws from Britain when Canada became a country. Um, but it was defined as a public nuisance more than anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, in, under Victorian laws, it was about morality or women being in places they shouldn't be. And more recently, uh, it was really about defining prostitution as a nuisance. And I mean, the reality is that, you know, 80 to 85% of sexual services are provided indoors. And the rest of the percentage are, um, you know, people that work on street. Um, But it's really the on-street sex workers that are getting all of the attention because People see it. It's in their neighborhoods. They, you you know, it's Mm -hmm. like homelessness, that it's visible and hence it's seen as a public issue. So it was seen as a nuisance. In the criminal code, which basically outlines what is considered a criminal offense in Canada, there were four provisions that were particularly problematic for sex workers. They were Section 210, which makes keeping or being found in a common body house illegal. A body house is any place that someone keeps or occupies for the purposes of sex work. Section 211 makes it illegal to take or direct someone to a body house. Section 212, which makes living on the avails of prostitution illegal, which means that someone cannot live off the money a sex worker makes or set up a date between a sex worker and a client. And Section 213, which makes communication in public for the purposes of prostitution illegal. This means you cannot buy or sell sex in public places. And the reason these sections created problems for sex workers is that many of the safety strategies used by sex workers, like screening clients by phone or online, 
having a safe place to work, and working under a manager or employer were illegal. So these changes actually created conditions for sex workers to be at a greater risk of violence. But in 2008, three sex workers, Terry Jean Bedford, Amy Leibovich, and Valerie Scott, took the government to court to challenge these provisions. And that was the Attorney General v. Bedford case. In the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, all Canadians are entitled to life, liberty, and security of person, and freedom of expression. It was these two rights that they felt were being violated by the provisions in the criminal code, because they made it difficult for sex workers to protect themselves from violence, and prevented sex workers from talking to clients about their services, prices, and details about their services. So what happened was, the lower courts ruled that the laws did violate the charter, and Bedford won, but the government appealed to a higher court, which ruled that the body house law was unconstitutional, but the living on the avails law should only apply in cases of exploitation. And they ruled that the communicating law was actually constitutional. And then this case went to the Supreme Court, who, in a landmark ruling, struck down all three of the laws in 2013. And what this meant was that the government had one year to enact new legislation that would be constitutional. They responded with Bill C-36, Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act, in 2014. Here's Anna Lee. The passage of Bill C-36 was really, really significant because when the Supreme Court indicated that um, three provisions of the prostitution laws at the time were unconstitutional, it was seen as a great victory for the sex workers' rights movement in Canada. And it was seen as the moment when the Supreme Court really, really recognized that the criminal, um, the criminalization of the sex industry has really, really detrimental and dangerous effects on sex workers. But that wasn't actually the case. But we happened to have at the time a conservative government that was very prohibitionist in its approach. And the writing was on the wall was very clear. The Supreme Court gave gave the government one year in order to come up with new legislation. And um, it moved towards this uh, model, which about eight countries in the world have adopted, which is called the sex purchase ban. This was the main difference in Bill C-36 from previous sex work legislation. For the first time in Canada, purchasing sexual services was now against the law. The sex purchase ban is also called the Nordic model or Swedish model. And basically it decriminalizes the actual sex worker, but criminalizes the clients who purchase sexual services. And when we adopted this model... Canada went much further than many countries who... Um uh, who have adopted this particular model um, by criminalizing just about everything mm -hmm. around the sex industries. So they just made it legal to sell something that no one can buy. And the impact of that is that sex workers are pushed into less visible and unpopulated areas to safely communicate about their work, which puts them at a greater risk for violence. One big change with the new bill was the criminalization of advertising sexual services, so it's legal to advertise your own services, but the advertisements can't be hosted on any public site, newspaper, or publishing company. Things like the personal sections and other ads were a safe way to screen potential clients. And with this latest bill, that screening process becomes way more difficult. 
um, sex workers can't advertise, they can't um, engage in work in certain public places. So there's various provisions. But the, in the end, even though sex workers are decriminalized, the industry itself has become criminalized. So it really hasn't shifted anything before the Bedford decision. The intention of Bill C-36 was to encourage sex workers to report incidents of violence and to actually reduce the demand for sex workers. The government wanted to shift the perception of sex work from public nuisance to inherent exploitation that affects mostly women and girls. And then if you criminalize everything else, um, including advertising, which is really important for a sex worker, you need to advertise, then you really uh, have created a very chilling effect on the sex industry. Sweden, who is the first country to adopt this model, there's no concrete evidence to suggest that it has either reduced the sex industry or reduced trafficking into the sex industry. So even though the the this a sex purchase ban model has been hailed as the answer to addressing gender inequalities, to address, you know, to protecting the vulnerable, to prevent trafficking. There's no evidence to suggest that it does. But this model overlooks the people who make an informed choice to do sex work and those for whom sex work is a valid career. Sex work, argue many sex workers and those who advocate for them, is not inherently exploitative. So even though sex workers are purportedly protected under this law because they are not criminalized, they need to be rescued, um, in fact, uh, the, whole, the entire industry has been basically criminalized. And for those who are working in the industry, it's had really, really very, very harmful effects that are being documented everywhere that has adopted this model. Yeah, they they created it around an imaginary sex worker who was a victim in their minds. This is another woman we talked to about the sex work industry. My name is Leah Shemka. My pronouns are she and her. And here at UVic, I am the Sexualized Violence Education and Prevention Coordinator. I'm located in Equity and Human Rights, but I also teach in Gender Studies. And Leah has worked closely with sex workers both on the ground and in her academic work. And she agreed that there are a lot of issues with Bill C-36. So just in general... um, Based on all of my conversations with sex workers, it's an unwelcome bill. Um, it is paternalistic, as you hinted at. Um, it doesn't address the core issues that create um, an unsafe environment for sex workers, which is stigma and discrimination. Um, I think that decriminalization would have been the more empowering thing to do, Mm -hmm. Uh, lift sex workers up, try to minimize the stigma and discrimination, empower them. Um, And this bill doesn't do that. And even though the Supreme Court recognized that the early provisions in the criminal code were actually endangering the lives of sex workers, their response with Bill C-36 hasn't made much progress in that regard. You know, Shifting the criminalization or the quasi-criminalization from sex workers to clients is essentially doesn't change anything for sex workers. 
you know, for, for many of them, their clients are not the things that create danger in their lives. It's, it's other factors. And so when you criminalize the John, you effectively make it difficult for them to do their work, which keeps them in the shadows, you know, in the dark parts of town or whatever, if they're working out outdoors or, you know, so it, it, for the most part, from many of the people I've chatted with, um, it hasn't done any good. And sex workers are seeing the costs of this. This is Anna Lee again. But it's very, very clear in many cities in Canada what has happened. It has really intensified police profiling and surveillance of the sex industry. Uh, It it has also um, uh, pushed sex workers into more dangerous locations. They're unable to negotiate as readily uh, with clients, et cetera, et cetera. So it has had an ill effect. And I think that 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 has been verified by the Canadian Alliance of Sex Work Reform, which is an alliance of sex workers organizations across the country, country who you know are in contact with sex workers organizations, and they have gathered this data to to look at the really detrimental effects of of um, this particular law. So this has the effect of both making people's working lives more difficult and placing a blanket of victimhood onto all sex workers when. Those who work in the industry know this isn't true. Uh, prostitution was redefined as sexual exploitation. So the prohibitionist argument that anyone, you know, that prostitution in and of itself, this transaction of money for sexual services is inherently coercive and violent. And so the conservative government redefined prostitution as sexual exploitation and said that this particular, these particular laws that target clients um, and third parties will eventually lead to the eradication of the sex industry. That's not to say exploitation doesn't happen in the sex industry, because it does, but it's such a diverse labor force that it's impossible to label all of sex work exploitative. This is Leah. I can say that it's a very diverse industry. You know, there's everything from people um, working you know, downtown on on the street. There's people working in parks. Um, a lot of people work independently out of their own homes. Um, there's a couple escort agencies in town. Um, and a lot of work is done via online mediums. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of folks travel between cities. So it's, it's I mean... Don't take anything I say as the definitive, because like I said, it does change, but it's very diverse. So there's no one picture. There's no one environment. There's, you know, you can't really do a snapshot per se. Mm-hmm. And people, the people that work in the industry, you know, really vary in age. Every Everything from very young people all the way up to people in their 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, people of all genders, uh, all backgrounds, ethnicities, so um, single parents, You know, so it's a real range of people. Still, sex work and trafficking are often conflated. And Annalie does work at the intersection of trafficking and sex work and applies her lens of sex worker advocacy to the world of anti-trafficking. I'm involved with an organization internationally. It's called the Global Alliance Against Trafficking Women. It's uh, an alliance of about 80 to 100 organizations 
organizations worldwide. And its international secretariat is in Bangkok, Thailand. And it is an anti-trafficking organization, but it takes a very critical look at the anti-trafficking world, uh, anti-trafficking campaigns, discourses, and so forth. And so uh, one of the unique features of GATW at the international level is that uh, in the anti-trafficking world is that it supports sex workers' rights and decriminalization of sex work. And the work she does there is particularly important because it challenges the pervasive idea that sex workers need to be rescued because they are all victims of sex trafficking. The way in which the anti-trafficking discourses work, and I just have to emphasize that the focus is usually on cisgendered women in the sex industry, that there are very strong what we call prohibitionist support uh, uh, forces, individuals that um, that believe that sex work is inherently exploitative and coercive, and hence they conflate sex work and trafficking. Um, and argue that all cisgendered women who are in the sex industry have been trafficked. So many of the anti-trafficking campaigns and uh, policies and discourses, and that relates to Bill C-36 as well, is an attempt to eradicate the sex industry because it's believed to be inherently exploitative and coercive, and hence everybody in the industry is trafficked if they are cisgendered women. As the vice president of the board of directors at GATW, Annalise says one of the key things they do is research. In 2018, for example, we completed a study. It was a seven-country study of sex workers' organizations in seven countries. And what we really wanted to look at was um, how how sex worker organization have really supported and empowered sex workers, the whole idea of organizing of sex workers around the world, but we focused on seven countries. The other area that we wanted to really focus on was this idea that sex worker organizations who have existed since at least the 1970s, if not before, around the world, is that they have been doing a lot of the work, on-the-ground work, with addressing working conditions in the industry. And that work has never, ever, is rarely, rarely ever recognized um, by those who are engaged in anti-trafficking work and haven't really recognized the on-the-ground work that sex worker organizations have done. So what happens then is that a lot of anti-trafficking policies and initiatives are created, which oftentimes have very detrimental effects on sex workers, that they create these without inviting sex workers to the table. And so we're really making a case for the idea that sex worker organizations have been really, really critical for many, many decades, even before trafficking became uh, a word that people were using in addressing working conditions, including coercive or forced labor conditions in the industry. The study looked at countries both in the global north and the global south. And even though the political, legal, socioeconomic context in these countries is very, very different, and you don't want to generalize across, but many of the themes that came out of these studies were quite similar in terms of the on-the-ground on work that sex worker organizations have been doing in all of these countries, uh, really important uh, peer-based 
organizing and support work, which is really, really, really critical, as well as all of the advocacy and other work that sex worker organizations are doing. And, um, and also the effects of the anti-trafficking climate are very, very similar in many countries. I mean, the contours might be different, the specifics might be different, but the overall effect has been the same in terms of, um, you know, pushing sex workers into more dangerous uh, locations and activities, not allowing them to navigate, you know, safety, um, and also the incredible intensification of police profiling and surveillance of the sex industry in the name of gender equality, in the name of protecting vulnerable people, um, and in the name of uh, eradicating or preventing trafficking. And global trends like this are why organizations like Peers in Victoria are so important in supporting people who do sex work. Anna Lee works with peers as well. Being on the board of peers is kind of an extension of that national and international work that really looks at how anti-trafficking discourses and campaigns have negatively impacted sex workers' rights and the, the call for decriminalization of sex work. Peers, or Peers Victoria Resource Society, is an organization that advocates for and supports sex workers in the community. It was founded in 1995 when founders Janet Rabinovich and Barb Smith saw the need for sex worker-specific resources in Victoria. This is Leah again, who actually worked at Peers back in 2012. But I can speak from my experience at the time, but um, I would say that Peers is um, critical to people working in the sex industry, not only in Victoria, but surrounding areas and all the way up the island. Uh, it's an organization that's been around for 25 plus years. Uh, it has an excellent reputation in the community and among sex workers. It is seen as, you know, for a lot of people, it's like home. They feel safe there. They feel like they can come in, be themselves, um, good days, bad days, whatever days, that they will be supported, they'll be cared for, they'll be seen and heard. Um and they'll be given different opportunities, you know, whether it's a nice hot meal that day or it's an opportunity to, you know, do a yoga class that somebody is volunteering to put on or an art class. Or it's everything from being able to volunteer in the organization itself and potentially get a job there. So um, what really stands out if you've been involved in peers for any length of time is the loyalty people have to the organization and really the deep love. It's, it's, I would say, for some individuals, not every single one, but it's a life-saving organization. And one of the things that make organizations like this particularly effective is the fact that it is peer-led, so they understand how to best serve sex workers in the community. So things like night outreach, um, we have an indoor workers um, dinner group. Um, we do advocacy. We have a drop-in center. Um, you know, there's... There's, you know, now newer programs like um, a peer health advocate program, um, career development. So there's lots of different programs that are in place because that's what sex workers want. When Leah worked at Peers in 2012, it was around the time that the Bedford case was being decided. And the old provisions around body houses, communication and living off of veils were being thrown out. 
She says that Piers has always remained committed to supporting sex workers amidst any political changes. Piers has always been very, very consistent. Um, we've, I mean, Piers has always been a feminist organization, and it's always been a peer-led organization. And so its inherent sort of values have been very consistent, which is uh, meeting people who are working in sex work where, where they're at. So it's, it's not about us determining what's best for them and what the programming should be. It's, it's what people need. And so the organization has always responded to the needs of people working in the sex work community in Victoria. And so, yeah, the programs are designed for them. But the folks at Piers do more than providing necessary resources to sex workers in Victoria. It wears two hats. It's on the ground, meeting people where they're at, and doing the simple things that make people's lives better. But there's certainly a lot of advocacy and activism that the agency does, um, in particular in connection with other sex work or, uh, organizations and agencies um, nationally and internationally. Um you know, they get together as as a group and look at bills that are on the docket or that are coming up and advocate for or against them. So there's certainly that work that is ongoing. And specifically, peers acknowledged the issues with Bill C-36 and advocated against it. I think that the folks at peers did a lot of work to expose... Um, that bill for for what it is. I know Rachel and some of our board members at the time did go to Ottawa and did speak to the committee um, to try to dispel a lot of these myths and to counter this this victim narrative. Um, I think that in Victoria, um, Piers has done a really great job of building connections and community and that in general, People in this city are very supportive of peers, have a real appreciation for what we do, the approach and the need for decriminalization. Like you said, I guess traditional values, I, I think specifically if you want to drill down on that a little bit more, it's it's the the morality attached to connecting sex and money, right? There's mm -hmm. this idea that those things are incommensurate. Also, Piers does outreach and offers inclusive support to different groups of people, which reflects how diverse the community of sex workers are. This is Annalie. It not only addresses the needs of cisgendered women who are in the sex industry or have been in the sex industry, but also has programming that uh, attends to participants who are Indigenous, uh, men in the sex industry, trans, non-binary people in the sex industry. So it's just really multi-tiered programming uh, for the people who participate or access the services of the organization. And so it does provide really important, non-judgmental, um, and very supportive programming for um, its particular participants. Another really good thing about peers is that they advocate for workers when they come into contact with Victoria Police. I think that my sense is, and you know, this could be corrected, but my sense is that Piers does have a good relationship with certain members of the Victoria Police Department as liaison officers. And so unlike in other cities in Canada who have been quite aggressive in enforcing 
uh, Bill C-36, that the Victoria Police Department has been much less aggressive in terms of profiling and uh, surveilling the sex industry, and that, uh, you know, there is mechanisms whereby peers can access uh, police support when necessary. Of course, depending on what uh, the sex worker, you know, wants to do. And she says this is pretty unique. That's a very, very different scenario in many cities in Canada. After her time working at Peers, Leah said it really solidified for her how important organizations like these are to people who do sex work. I think that I had a a newfound appreciation for the organization and the power of a grassroots organization, one that is peer-led, how important and meaningful that is to people. Um, So, yeah, I'd say a newfound appreciation for that. Um, Just a deep respect and regard for the people that do the work. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard work. It demands um, a lot of resiliency, a lot of passion, a lot of... um, just care and kindness and so just a huge respect for the people working and doing that work you know being on night outreach night after night and you know spending the night on the stroll and handing out food and you know harm reduction supplies and whatnot um and seeing people in various states you know sometimes in a lot of distress sometimes not but it's really 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 hard work so just a deep respect for them and then just like so many awesome clients You know, I became friends with lots of them. People come in in different moods every day, super happy, excited, um, sometimes, you know, really down and and going through a a lot of difficulties. So a lot of respect for their resilience and um, just lovely humanity. Leah got involved with peers as part of her academic work. She wanted to ground her work in lived experience, and she said this was a learning opportunity for her that has informed her teaching. But I think probably if I've if I've learned a really important lesson, it is bringing people in to speak to their own experience wherever possible, rather than you know having textbooks or academics speak for their experience. Mm-hmm. So bringing folks in, having them do guest lectures, stuff like that, I think that's probably um, one of the major changes to my teaching following that experience. Sex work is incredibly controversial, and there are a lot of misconceptions about the lives of sex workers. Legislators create laws on behalf of sex workers without any real input from the people working on the ground, which creates a lot of issues, obviously. The main solution many sex workers and sex work advocates see is decriminalization. Here's Annalie. I mean, I think that there's no governance legislation that is perfect. Um, the decriminalization is a model um, that has been called for by the sex workers organizations uh, around the world or sex workers' rights advocates around the world. What decriminalization means is, one, you take the prostitution laws out of the criminal code because what you're basically doing is that you're criminalizing work if you are... Mm -hmm. If you take a labor perspective, which sex workers' rights organizations do, that those who are working in the industry, that they are earning a livelihood, they're earning income through sexual services uh, or through providing sexual services. And that came through very, very strongly in our seven-country study is, you know, that, yes, 
you may not have the perfect working conditions, but that people are making a livelihood through this transaction of providing sexual services for money, which many people have a moral problem with. If there was an exchange of money, we would call it dating or hookup, right? But because there's an exchange of money that is negotiated, then there is, you know, people freak out and have a moral issue with that. So one, you would take the criminal, you would take the provisions against prostitution out of the criminal code. You would use, uh, second, you would use generic laws. If you look at the criminal code, there's lots of laws there to address such things as assault, exploitation, kidnapping, fraud, et cetera, et cetera, that can all be uh, covered by, by generic criminal code that apply to everyone. And then thirdly, that the sex industry would be regulated through business codes, through labor laws, just like every other form of work, right? Mm -hmm. There are age laws associated with various industries, you know, child labor isn't allowed in, I mean, in the, I think there are some provisions where you can be 13 and work in a family restaurant, but that's about it. Usually you have to be of age to work in most, um, most industries so that the labor laws and the business codes associated with, uh, you know, with labor or work uh, would apply to the sex industry. So decriminalization is something that a lot of sex workers want because the laws around sex work make their job so much more difficult. I don't know a single sex worker who doesn't want it to be fully decriminalized. It's such a headache. That's Tiffany Taylor, a.k.a. Hi, Tiffany I'm Tempest. Tiffany I'm a sex worker and writer. And she's been doing sex work for about five years. Um, I am currently a pro-dominatrix. Um, I've also do some escorting. I'm also a stripper, do mostly stag parties. I used to work in clubs, but I don't like doing the circuit. It's exhausting. I, yeah, I used to do porn. I was a cam performer and I feel like I've done every form of sex work possible besides like street sex work. So Tiffany wasn't working in the sex work industry before Bill C-36 passed, but she remembers having a different perspective about it before she understood what sex work was really like. It passed when she was still in high school. And I remember we talked about it with my social studies teacher, and it just sounded like so sweet. When you hear it as a non-sex worker, it sounds like an awesome deal. Sex workers themselves aren't technically criminalized. However, activities we have to do in order to do our job and stay safe are criminalized. So once you start doing sex work, you realize that you can't work with other sex workers. You can't pay your bills with your money because it's illegal to live off the avails. If you live with someone and you pay your rent to them with the money you make doing sex work, that's illegal. They could be charged with pimping. And there's just so many bizarre laws. And then our clients are criminalized. And like, I like my clients. Like, I like my job. I don't want them to be criminalized. And on top of that, SESTA and FOSTA passed in 2018, making things even more difficult. SESTA stands for the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act. And FOSTA stands for the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. They are actually U.S. laws, but they have consequences for sex workers all over the world. One of the things you might have noticed was the removal of the personal section on Craigslist, where people would post searching for casual sex and things like missed connections. 
Basically, the result of these laws was that any site that advertised sexual services was now in violation of the country's anti-sex trafficking law, which stated that it was illegal to knowingly assist, facilitate, or support sex trafficking. So before SESTA and FOSTA, sites were immune to this because they were not held accountable for their users. But the thing is, these laws also further endangered sex workers because they couldn't use these same screening methods. But since clients are now criminalized... It makes it so much harder to find safe clients because they don't want to submit to your screening processes. They don't want to give away their personal information because they might be arrested. And that gives them the upper hand because you still need them to make money. So you still have to just accept clients somehow. So everyone just has like, pardon my French, really screening processes. If it was fully decriminalized, it would be so much easier. And like Anna Lee was talking about earlier, sex work and sex trafficking are not the same thing. And to conflate the two is to completely undermine the autonomy of people who choose sex work. There's this argument that sex workers are victims because if there wasn't money involved, we wouldn't say yes to our job. But I've had many jobs outside of sex work. And if you weren't paying me, I wouldn't show up. Like sex work isn't a volunteer position. It can be really fulfilling, and I think what people don't understand about that is there is a huge difference between choosing to do sex work because you genuinely like the job or you want to do it, doing sex work because you are too poor and there's no other economic opportunities available to you, but you're still choosing to do it, and it's better than working at McDonald's because you have a family and being forced into it. That's horrific. Conflating sex trafficking with sex work is like conflating slavery to office work. It just doesn't make sense. And the people who conflate sex work with sex trafficking are the people who would never want to do sex work. And that's fine. But Part of being a feminist is accepting that other women might make choices you don't want to make. And that's fine. Another recent change in the legislation around sex work was Bill C-75, an act to amend the criminal code, the Youth Criminal Justice Act, and other acts, and to make consequential amendments to other acts, which sounds extremely vague. And it is. But it repealed the part of Bill C-36 that outlawed body houses. So the reason this is safer is if you have a bad date, which a bad date means someone was violent towards you, you have peers already there to either like come out from another room and defend you or give you emotional support. And yeah, it's also just like less boring. Like if you're sitting alone in a hotel room or in an apartment, like I don't know, that's lonely. And then you have these clients come and then you have these deeply intimate, private moments with them and then they leave and then you're just sitting there. And if you have a friend there, like you can talk about it and debrief. I much prefer working with friends. I think most people do. But Bill C-75 overlooked a lot of areas where sex work legislation needs to be amended. It was not a solution. The ways that these laws are designed are making the lives of sex workers more dangerous and challenging. So I wondered how lawmakers could not understand how these decisions impacted people. Do people actually think that they're like 
doing good. They do. I think they do. The lawmakers, I think they're doing. They think they're doing good. But peer mentorship's a good thing in every career. And sex work, it's especially important because you can't Google how to screen a client. You have to ask a sex worker. And yeah, you like, I feel like the general population, even if you like have an idea of what it takes to do your job, you don't know until you do it. And like, that's true with a lot of jobs. But like, if you enter sex work and you don't have a realistic expectation about the risks and what, but then also an understanding of how you can mitigate risk, you're going to get hurt. You might get hurt regardless. But at least if you have a peer mentor, you can have someone to sit down with you to be like, this is what you do if someone tries to rob you. This is what you do if you get raped. This is what you do in like this situation. Like, what if you get drugged? This is what you do, you know? And you have to talk to people who have like been in those situations and survived in order to get that information. Tiffany thinks that a lot of the mainstream ideas around sex work come from a perspective that sex work is immoral. Yeah, I think those waspy people should have moral issues with poverty, transphobia, misogyny, racism, colonialism, like a whole host of things that lead people um, to choose sex work. Then they should with doing sex work themselves, like just sex work itself. Yeah, like a lot of trans people do sex work to pay for their transition because how else are you going to do it? A lot of um, trans people experience a lot of harassment in the workplace. So by doing sex work, they're taking back their power and they're making significantly more money than they could otherwise. I'm generalizing, um, but most of the trans sex workers I've met, that's kind of their story. But sex workers have worked tirelessly on advocacy and fighting against these problematic laws with the help of nonprofits like Pierce. The only reason we got the Nordic model instead of full criminalization is because sex workers worked for it. It was radical feminists and Christians working against us trying to get, yeah. Sex workers wanted full decriminalization and radical feminists wanted the Nordic model because they see us as victims and they think that the Nordic model allows them to save us. But we don't need saving. Like, what if we like our job? <laughs> Leave us alone. The prevailing idea around sex workers are either that they were forced into it or I made a bad choice and I regret it, which I don't. I actually think choosing to do sex work was one of the most responsible choices I've ever made next to like going to university because I am now in fourth year. I have zero student debt and a savings account. And I was able to pay for, like, all of the therapy I needed for my mental health. And this viewpoint doesn't just extend to the workers. Clients are stigmatized, too. Um, People think that people who buy sex are bad people. And they're not. They deserve to be decriminalized. Like, they deserve to... Yeah, I don't know. I don't even know how to word this. Like, it's just radical feminists being radical feminists in the worst way possible and trying to make decisions for other people. When Tiffany refers to radical feminists, she's referring to this type of feminism, radical feminism, that basically argues that sex work and pornography are inherently oppressive towards women because of the power imbalance of the patriarchy. If you've heard of the term SWERF, a sex work exclusionary radical feminist, or TERF, a trans exclusionary radical feminist, 
it comes from this type of feminism. The fact is, sex work is important for a lot of people who rely on it. Yeah, many people see sex workers because they're disabled, so they don't feel like they would be wanted by a civilian. Um, or they feel that sex workers bring a certain sensitiveness to their sex life. And there's also people who see sex workers because they're lonely and they just want some human touch. We all need a little love sometimes. doesn't matter if it's paid for, it's still genuine. And if more people understood the nuances of sex work and how the current legislation can endanger workers, maybe decriminalization could be an actual possibility. My personal utopia for sex work would be it's seen... It's held in the same regard as going to a dentist or a counselor. It's like, it's seen as a required service that does a lot of good. And sex workers are seen as just service providers. I'm tired of telling people I'm a sex worker and seeing them cringe or just have to answer like a host of kind of rude questions. A lot of people will ask me, if I've had any bad experiences, which, yes, I have. It's none of your business. And people also ask me how much I make. And also if I'm doing this by my own choice, which is because I'm an adult woman, I can make my own choices. But yeah, my ideal future is fully criminalization and sex workers are no longer stigmatized. And we can actually open like openly talk about the good we do. It's no walk in the park, but Tiffany really sees the value in the work she does. I had to figure out Bitcoin to do my job and web development in order to be an independent sex worker. Even if there wasn't like any skills involved, like it's still such valid work and sex workers are literally doing God's work. Like we are taking people who feel unwanted, unloved and giving them love. That's what we do. That's it. And she sees a pretty good return on it, too. Like, it gives you a good, comfortable life. You can pay for whatever you need to pay for. There's no salary cap either. So if I have one month where I'm like, I just need to pay, like, my basic bills and, you know, maybe put a little in my savings, I can just work enough to pay for all of that. If I need to cover, like, a $2,000 surprise expense, I can just, like, work a little extra hard and, like, cover that. And most other jobs, like it would take so many shifts to cover that. Yeah. And it's also a job that's compatible with my other positions. I'm very lucky in that way. Both of my civilian jobs know I'm a sex worker, so I don't have to worry about them finding out. So even though I have other jobs, if I like want to go on a vacation and I don't have enough money, I'll just work for a couple weekends and then I can go. And because of that reality, lots of people think, oh, I should do sex work. And Tiffany says she fields a lot of questions from people interested in trying it out. So I'll get like people messaging me even on my personal Facebook page being like, hey, how do I do this? In Canada, it's illegal to help someone enter prostitution. So that puts me in like a super sketchy situation. Now I have a moral, I feel like I have a moral obligation to help people because they're going to do it anyways. But if I don't help them, they're going to be in a lot of danger or, but then I'm also in conflict with the law because it's illegal for me to do that. So now I'm putting myself in harm's way. I'm not even going to tell you what I do in those situations, but it's hard. It's a hard call. 
The fact is, a lot of people misunderstand how tough the work actually is. They're like, you make it seem so fun. And I'm like, that's just because it's Instagram. Like, I only post what's fun. You miss out on all of the, like, 24 hours of me working straight or, like, the annoying clients or all of the time I spend, like, trying to figure out my website because it's glitching or doing my goddamn taxes. Oh, my God. <laughs> you have no idea how complex it is to do your taxes as a sex worker because you're a small business owner. It's dumb. With the laws the way they are now, the working life of a sex worker is going to be difficult. So they need good allies. Pay for our services. Yeah. Speak up when people make horophobic jokes. It's really simple, actually. Being an ally to sex workers is like, just means doing the bare minimum. Like, just don't say things about us. And if you want, pay for our services. Don't abuse us. That's it. That's all we ask for. And also support decriminalization. All of this to say, sex work is work. And we need to understand the context and the realities of people's lived experience instead of making judgments about what other people should do with their bodies. Sex workers are hella resilient people. So you can do what you want to our working conditions. We'll figure it out. They passed Vafisesta. We figured out Black Web. They passed Bill C-36. We still had body laws. We still paid our bills with our money. We just worried about criminalization. Sex work is the oldest profession on earth for a reason. It is so deeply human. Let people do sex work. They're going to do it anyways. Criminalizing it does This episode of Taking Up Space was produced by Sarah Sulman with help from Hank Dutton, Nicola Watts, and Coco Nielsen. Our executive producer is Mary Decker. Thank you to all of our guests, Annalie Lepp, Leah Shumka, and Tiffany Tempest. This program would not be possible without the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada. If you like this episode, check out Taking Up Space next week and subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, you should check out Full Circle's upcoming episode about feminism and burlesque called Burlesque, BIPOC Women Reclaiming Bodies. Hey, give me your ear. Let's, uh, let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFPB's podcasts. Hi, this is Serena with CFPB 101.9 FM. I just wanted to share with you how wonderful a time I've had this past year being a volunteer working on CFUV's Taking Up Space podcast. Um, I find that uh, narrative uh, podcasts are such a great space for sharing the voices of marginalized folks and communities. Um, in particular, working on the Hormone Monster podcast was such an amazing experience. And not only did I get to share some really enthralling and eye-opening uh, information with you all. Um, I also learned quite a bit about my own body and, you know, the ways that uh, our hormones really just play around with uh, how we interact with the world. 
that episode was so eye-opening and so validating for me, especially as a transgender woman. Um, beyond that, um, yeah, I just found that working on these podcasts was such a really cool experience. Um, I learned so many skills that I'm able to now apply into my own artistic practice. Um, and yeah, it, I really can't really can't say enough about how great of an experience it's been. Um, if you're interested at all in volunteering, I would highly recommend uh, getting in touch with the folks here at CPB. Thanks. <laughs>